Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Trump administration executed 40-year-old Brandon Bernard by lethal injection at 9.27 p.m. in the federal prison in Terre Haute, Indiana. The Supreme Court denied a last-minute stay of execution for Bernard, with the three liberal justices dissenting. Five of the jurors who sentenced Bernard to death and a former prosecutor who challenged Bernard's appeal of his death verdict have all spoken out against the execution and pleaded for Bernard's life to be spared. Bernard was an accomplice to a double murder crime at age 18, which made him just barely legally eligible for the death penalty. He is the youngest person, based on his age when the offense occurred, in nearly seven decades to be executed by the federal government. He is the ninth person to die in the Trump administration's end-of-office killing spree, and the first executed in Trump's lame duck months. Trump is the first president in 131 years to carry out a federal execution after losing re-election. Trump and the Attorney General, William Barr, have committed to pushing through at least four more executions before Biden's inauguration, and those targeted for death are disproportionately black. Trump resumed federal executions in July after a 17-year hiatus of the death penalty. A wave of over 50 protests outside California prisons have been led by a grassroots group of people with family in prison called We Are Their Voices. Protests will convene on Sunday, December 13, 2020 at 10 a.m. at the following facilities. California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility, Kokoran State Prison, Kern Valley State Prison, North Kern State Prison, MCCF, Pleasant Valley State Prison, Aveno State Prison, and Wasco State Prison. Families and friends are holding memorials for those whose lives have been lost in prison. An evacuation plan will also be delivered, written collaboratively by families and advocates. Quote, I don't want to die in here, says Jamie Lian, who is currently incarcerated at SATF and is at a high risk for contracting the virus due to his age and terminal lung cancer. Quote, I've heard them say they want this virus to run its course. They want us to get it. They don't care who dies, end quote. Quality of life is at a dangerous low. People inside describe near-starvation meals with tiny portions, as well as being placed in crowded gym dormitories or in cells without heat and electricity. At this moment, CDCR is responsible for 5,502 active COVID-19 cases and 93 deaths from the virus. 60% of the people in SATF have had COVID-19, most of them within the last month, and that figure is over one-third at several other facilities. There is not a single facility in the entire system that is currently free from active COVID-19 cases. Prisoners at the Saskatoon Provincial Correctional Center in Saskatchewan, Canada, organized a hunger strike last week to protest the rapidly spreading COVID-19 outbreak at the facility. The hunger strike lasted several days and ended on Monday, November 30th. Corey Cardinal, an Indigenous prisoner and a leader in the hunger strike, spoke with Perilous about the outcome of the strike. Since uh, I've been in the paper and stuff and raising issues with the correctional here in uh, Saskatoon, uh, 
there's been a few updates. So I got pulled out of the out of the hole where I was at by one of the one of the officials and they they emphasized their concern with the things I was doing and the level of media attention focused on the correctional and with the solidarity with the inmates that stepped up to uh, form a peaceful peaceful protest and she emphasized her concern around how my influence and the influence of the other inmates is going to result in a, a potential riot. So she was negotiating a dialogue with me and so since then um, I've got moved to another unit. It's by far the most strict unit I've probably ever been on. The teenagers here is on point. They come out with surgical gloves and masks and uh, all kinds of PPE on and stuff and so yeah, and they clean the unit regularly, so uh, I'm in a single cell. Like, before, they weren't even letting us know anything what was happening, and they were keeping us in the dark, and it was creating a lot of stress on the units. But since then, they've agreed to give us updated uh, letters every day, almost kind of like a little uh, COVID forecast for the correctional, including inmate counts. People that, uh, like how many inmates are infected, how many recoveries, kind of like on the news every day, but for us inmates. And also, they took away our canteen before, and it led to a lot of aggression, a lot of stress on the unit, which created a more dangerous work environment for correctional officers, and they're very limited. <laughs> 31 of their staff got tested positive, so they, they were taking things from us, right? But since then, they've They've uh, sent this little letterhead around saying that they're giving us more calls, so another extra call, so that we could uh, get a hold of our loved ones, like, you know, like, uh, get a hold of uh, social supports here and uh, try to get relief conditions together. So I think that was one of the uh, things that, that I was hunger striking about was their lack of resources allocated to the common inmate who has nothing, right? And so they raised our canteen price. And they implemented another canteen, like an emergency canteen. They raised us from $75 cap amount to $125. Um, they've given us more PPE, more sanitizing and hygiene stuff, which was one of the reasons and the nature of, of the protest in the first place was they were refused to give us anything to combat the COVID on the unit because they left several inmates on the unit with COVID, and it exposed all the other inmates. So today they've done testing, again, another round of testing in Saskatoon, like the whole jail-wide, and I think we're going to see another spike just because of that, that stigma factor involved that I don't really think they've considered, which probably led to big spike in the last uh, round of testing. So 116 inmates thus far, over 10 units, 31 staff infected, so that was that was from the last time, and this time, pretty sure you're going to see another spike just because of their flawed quarantine procedures and how they left inmates on the unit and didn't quarantine them, take them off, and they were positive, and then they exposed all the other inmates. So that's yeah, funny how uh, the Minister of Corrections and Policing, Christine Calder, has been trying to answer the media questions on the on the on the TV, saying how she doesn't know how the COVID got in and that she had those procedures in place to protect us and protocols in place. Well, I came right 
I'm basically a product of this environment, and I've seen firsthand of the flaws of their, their protocols and their procedures and their quarantine procedures here. And here's another example of one of those flaws. So there's 35 of us that got tested on ECHO, which is an, a dorm. There's six dorms in the correctional, all no chance of social distancing, overcrowded. So I think two or three inmates got came back positive. The nurses told them that. So they were left on the unit for three days. And I think they're even still left on there, further exposing all the other inmates, including myself and my friend Troy Maurice. But I came back negative, and I'm, I'm symptomatic. So because of my hunger strike and my altercation on the unit, I got put into the hole. I think I talked to you down there. Troy Maurice followed me. He also tested negative. But while down there, he was symptomatic, developing symptoms, and he tried to inform the staff by way of following their procedures, request slip to, and complaints to the nursing staff who ignored him. They did not respond. He asked for another COVID test multiple times. I didn't know this. So we got put on another unit, me and Troy, and then they put me in a single cell. So they come on the unit and say, are you still good with Troy? We were going to put you in a double cell with him. So I agreed. Part of it is was he was symptomatic and put into a double cell further exposing me and we let the office know, and they just left us sit here. So, yeah, so it's just another example of systemic failure in the correctional centers. It sounds like the hunger strike was overall pretty successful. Well, it's a start, and it's a, you know, it was very necessary, very necessary. Our rights are being diminished. Uh, thank you for listening to me. Spokesperson for the Ministry of Justice, Noel Bassi, confirmed that, quote, as a response to the tray refusal, facility staff committed to providing additional daily updates to offenders, unquote. Bussey did not respond to requests for comment on the other changes Cardinal reported. And now we speak once again with Kelsey Kaufman, who gives updates on the rapid spread of the novel coronavirus across facilities in the Indiana prison system. My name is Kelsey Kaufman, and I have worked in prison research and prison teaching for most of the past 50 years. From 2012 until 2017, I ran the college program at the Indiana Women's Prison and still am working very closely with those women through an organization called Constructing Our Future and another one called Ujima. And ever since the pandemic started, we've been focused on the impact that it's having on people in prison, which is quite devastating in Indiana and in almost all other states. So one of the things that we've done recently is to take the data that the Department of Corrections has been releasing since March and trying to put it together in ways that will make sense to people and allow them to see what's happening on a week-to-week basis. So the problem with the DOC's data is that it's all cumulative, so it's impossible to look look at it and understand what's been happening in the last week or the last month. And that's what we have tried to do, make that very understandable. So if anyone wants to see that information, they can go to indianaprisonpandemicproject.com. In the past six weeks, we've had outbreaks in eight of the prisons in Indiana. A lot of them are getting repeat outbreaks, and there, there have been major crises in Putnamville in Miami, Branchville, the Correctional Industrial Facility. It's, it's been pretty widespread, but 
there have been two, actually there were three prisons that have been pretty much spared. And one of them um, was Branchville. It, it, it now has a major outbreak. Um, a second was Rockville, which is also having a major outbreak right now. And the third is Madison, which we fear might be having a, a, a major, going to get a major outbreak um, as a consequence of what's happening at Rockville. So let's, let's look first at Rockville. So Rockville is a hybrid institution. It's both an intake institution as well as, as the largest of the three Indiana women's prisons. And they had just a handful of cases um, over the first eight months of the pandemic. And then in late November, they began to have um, an outbreak there, which just has soared, it's gone through the roof. Um, it's now infecting hundreds of the women there. And the conditions are really quite bad. And it's always a little bit surprising to me that prisons that have had eight months to prepare for this are doing as badly as they are. But the problem is that they have too many people in the prisons and therefore they have almost no way to isolate people. So let me just read you from an, an email that I received from a woman who's in Rockville. So Rockville is a maximum security prison and it has five double dormitories and a segregation unit. So the segregation unit has 30 beds, but everybody else are in these large dormitories. So I quote from her, our rooms are fenced in cubicles with 14 to 16 women per room. We live in bunk beds separated by three feet. Every 136 women share two bathrooms. So we've got two bathrooms being shared by 136 women. There has been no universal testing. Only people who show obvious signs of infection and report it to medical are tested first. Then upon a positive result, the other roommates are tested within a day or two. This has resulted in a 66% positivity test rate, which is appalling. That, that was me adding that in. Um, to compare, I think the general public positive test rate is generally under 10%. And what the CDC, and this is again my commentary, the CDC is recommending that it be kept under 3 to 5%. Isolation areas include the rec building, gymnasium, education building, hallways, and classrooms. Quarantine has meant that the dorm room was shut and the women were put on controlled movement to and from the bathrooms, which were then mostly sprayed with disinfectant afterwards. This lasts for 14 days. So initially the policy was to isolate the positive case and all the people who had close contact, i.e. their entire room, but that quickly ate up valuable floor space. Then the policy was to isolate the positive cases and then quarantine the remaining roommates by locking their doors. Mind you, the wall and door are made of fence material. Then the nurses would return in a day or two and test the roommates for positive cases to isolate. Then even that became a problem. They ran out of isolation areas. Even after clearing out more classrooms and the children's visiting center, it wasn't enough. Like I said, according to the IDOC's published statistics, Rockville has tested 114 women in the past three days, and 75 of those tested positive, bringing the number of active cases to 162. This was written almost a week ago. So the policy changed. All, all dorms were shut down, no movement in or out except for the most essential workers for kitchen or trash and laundry and the mail and count runners. Meals have been changed to mostly sacks and delivered to the dorms, and even medication is delivered. But what about the newest sick people? Now when a person tests positive, the policy is to lock the door, confine the sick person together with her roommates. So pause for a moment to think about that statement. 
The prisoners essentially thrown up their hands and walked away from the problem for the moment. I'm sure that they're working on a better solution, or at least we hope so. But in the meantime, we see our neighbor get sick and we start worrying. Then they test positive and we literally become trapped in the room with them. It's like something out of a horror movie. In the beginning, I used to flippantly say that when the COVID finally comes here, the prison will just let us get sick and die. I thought I was just being dramatic, but it might have been more prescient than I know. I'm afraid. So that's the situation there. And we've had three people die just in the last few days, not at Rockville, but at the men's prisons. You have thousands of people who've been sickened in the prison system. And the rate is increasing as it is in the rest of the state. But something else I want to say to people is that it's this, we're not just doing it to the people who are in prison. By allowing these incredibly virulent outbreaks at these prisons, we're also condemning the rest of us to more outbreaks. So you notice that in America that rural areas are being harder hit right now than, than urban areas. And a lot of that is because America, unlike any other country, um, has prisons and jails everywhere, absolutely everywhere. And a lot of them are in rural areas, disproportionate numbers are in rural areas. So Rockville is in Park County, which um, is on the Illinois, almost to the Illinois border. It's due west of Indianapolis, a couple of hours, but Park is very rural. And yet it is one of the five hotspots in Indiana right now. And Indiana has the highest infection rate right now in, in, in the entire country. And so why is Park County a hotspot? It's a hotspot because we're allowing an outbreak, an uncontrolled outbreak in a prison, which then inevitably infects people in the county who work there, and then they bring it back, and it, the whole county becomes a hotspot. So it, it's really a fairly disastrous situation. I live in Putnam County, where Putnamville is located, and there were hundreds and hundreds of, of men who were infected. And this was six weeks ago, and you'll see you know, the rates in Putnam County and nearby Clay County, where a lot of the people who work in the prison live, and the conditions that we're, we're subjecting all these people to are really terrible. At Putnamville, we understand that a hundred of the men who were tested positive were placed into kind of an abandoned warehouse-like building that had one, one bathroom, one shower, one drinking fountain for everybody, all hundred men who were in there. So it's pretty, it's, it's pretty bad. It's pretty, pretty disastrous. Harrowing is, is, is a really good way to describe it. And there, there are two things really that are, that are driving the problem in the prisons. The first is that we're allowing these incredibly high positivity rates. So positivity rates is the percentage of people that you test that are positive. Uh, and those rates are supposed to be somewhere around three to 5% during a pandemic if you want to control it. And in the Indiana prison system until August, it was over 50%. That means that more than half of the people that they tested were positive, which means that they weren't testing anywhere near enough. Now the DOC has brought that, that down to 29%, which is still pretty shockingly high. But then there are some prisons where the rates have been much, much higher than that. So for example, um, we've had Newcastle Correctional Facility, and that's a, a privately operated prison. They've had 350 men test positive, nine of them have died, and yet their positivity rate has never gone really below 33%. That means one out of every three of one of their, of their people are testing positive. Miami Correctional Facility, during their large outbreak, had a positivity rate of about 68%. 
Branchville during their outbreak had 56%. The Wabash Valley Correctional Facility during their peak weeks of having an outbreak had positivity rates of 72 and 58%. And this is just not acceptable. It just means that the state is choosing not to test people in the prison system at anywhere near the rate that they should be tested. They really need to be universally tested. And our solution, our recommendation to the Department of Corrections is that they bring the rate down below three to 5% in every, every single one of the prisons. And then that they start instituting what's called pooled testing or wastewater monitoring so that you can detect, even before people show symptoms, you'll be able to know. So here's, here's a really interesting example of something that's happened. So Miami Correctional Facility has been really out of control, not just in terms of COVID, but in, in, in every respect. And it had a large outbreak. And so at the beginning of October, they transferred men from Miami down to Branchville. Now Branchville had had no cases in four months, none, zero. And suddenly they had a huge outbreak that started two and a half weeks after the Miami people arrived. Now, we can't say for sure that that's why, but it certainly seems that that's the case. Um, and then that hundreds of people at Branchville um, became sick, at least one has died, um, and they turned a problem at one prison into a problem that's now at two. Um, and I see the same thing happening with um, Rockville and Indiana Women's Prison and Madison Correctional Facility. Those are the three prisons for women. So Rockville, IWP has had, um, that's the women's prison, has had um, a, a large outbreaks twice, and they've had terrible, terrible conditions for the women during that whole time. So Rockville now has had no cases, and then they've got hundreds of people sick. And so they are making IWP the intake unit for the Department of Correct for Women in the Department of Corrections. And I understand IWP is also taking women from Marion County Jail. Um, so you're bringing new women into the facility, uh, some of whom are likely going to be positive. And the decision, as I understand it, has been made that they're going to then move Indiana Women's Prison women down to Madison Prison, which has had no cases at all. And I fear that the What's gonna happen then is that we'll have a large outbreak at Madison. So our, our big push is to say, release people, don't transfer them. That when you transfer people during a pandemic from one prison that's infected to another prison that's not, all you're doing is seeding a outbreak at a second prison. And that happened in, in California during the summer. Uh, Chino prison had a huge outbreaks. So they, they sent men to San Quentin, which had no cases. And within a few weeks, 2,000 people in San Quentin um, had gotten COVID and 26 of them died, and, and including one officer who died. You want to release people, you don't want to transfer them. And then it's actually would be very easy to release a whole lot of people. Um, so there are three categories of people that, that, that could be released. Um, the first is you could release everybody who's going to be leaving anyway in just a few months. So 20%, more than 20% of people who are in Indiana prisons have less than 12 months to serve and have already served more than half of their sentence. So you, you could lower your population there by 20% fairly quickly. But 10% have fewer than three months to leave. So go ahead and, and have them leave. What you want to do is you want to quarantine them 
before they leave. And you want to quarantine them outside of the prison system. But we've written a whole proposal about how to do that. But you could just release those people who have only three months left to serve. You reduce your population by 10%. And then we have a whole group of people, about 5% of the Indiana prison population, were sentenced before the criminal code changed on July 1, 2014. And that those five, those several thousand people are serving longer prison sentences, much longer prison sentences than they would have if they had been sentenced after July 1, 2014 for the exact same crime. So basically what happened is in the early 2000s, the legislature, the citizens of the state, governor, all felt that our criminal code needed to be completely revised because so many crimes were disproportionate and the sentences for drug possession were draconian. So we have lots of people who are still in prison who were sentenced before the crime code changed who would long since have been released if they had been sentenced after the crime code changed. And a lot of them never would have been sent to prison in the first place. So keeping people in prison who we no longer think ought to be being punished for what they did, doesn't make sense even in the best of times, but this is not the best of times. We're in the midst of a pandemic. For heaven's sakes, release those people. I don't think anyone would object to that. The third group is people who are in prison on what are called technical parole or probation violations. That means they did not commit a new crime, but that they somehow violated a condition of their probation or parole. For example, you broke curfew or you failed to make a meeting if you missed a meeting with your parole or probation officer, or if you're unable to pay court fines and fees or you lose your job. Any of those can trigger you going back into prison. So about 85% of people who are on probation or parole who go back to prison are technical violations. And that would be another perhaps 5% of the population. So you could easily release 20 to 25% of people who are currently in Indiana prisons with no hassles. And I just don't understand why we're not doing that. So we want to release people not transfer them and bring your positivity rates below 3%. And you want to institute at that point what's called pooled testing or wastewater surveillance so that you detect those outbreaks before they even happen. And if they want to know how to do that, check it out with Rose Holman Institute of Technology in Terre Haute. They're doing just a fine job doing that. And we have other recommendations. One of them is to improve communications, both within prisons and from prison to outside, and make sure that they give priority to people in prison who they can't release, give them priorities on vaccinations. So those are just some of the, the things. If, again, if you go to that website, indianaprisonpandemicproject.com, um, you can see all these recommendations and all the data and uh, analysis of all the, of the data. We've written a letter to the governor. Uh, it's been signed now by more than 900 people asking him to release everybody that he can. So basically those three categories of people, the ones who are about to be leaving anyway, people who are in on technical violations and people who were sentenced under the old criminal code. Uh, and we're also pushing some specific cases. For example, we have a woman named Linda Chesey who's in prison. She's 70 years old. She's been there for more than 30 years. She's in poor health. And the parole board has twice recommended her unanimously for clemency. Um, so why not release her? Or for example, we give an example of a young man who's in prison 
for a nonviolent offense, and he's got sickle cell anemia, which puts him at high risk if he gets COVID. But he's living in a prison dormitory where he's just a sitting duck if, if the virus invades the dormitory. We've got 84-year-old Nettie Luckett, who is just as sweet as they come, could easily be. I mean, you've got people like Ronika Starks, who was already in ill health before the, the pandemic. She was on dialysis three times a day. And sure enough, she got COVID and was in the hospital on a ventilator and now has far worse medical problems than she did before. And so we're asking for the release of some specific people like Renika or Linda, and I'm hoping that people can follow up when they sign the letter, they can then follow up and appeal to the governor. And uh, I hope that Governor Holcomb will act on that in the spirit of not just forgiveness, but also recognizing that prisons are undermining the entire state in terms of avoiding the spread of the pandemic. If you're an Indiana resident, we'll have a link to the letter that you can sign on our website. And once again, thanks to Perilous Chronicle for their reporting. You can find out more at perilouschronicle.com. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.